I'm Ruth. I'm Ray. We go together like Beyonce and Jay. No, Ray, we're. we're I don't know what's wrong with that. Tell me what's wrong with (laughs) that. We're nothing like that. They're ride or die like us, right? You know what? I'm not that ride or die. I am not. She's a Latina. He's a gringo. I'm into culture and food and. And I'm a zero. Why would you say that? I'm always saying I'm into boring documentary stuff. And like you're into like cool stuff. Why do we want to listen to this? It's because we're different. We go together like how and why. But somehow it just works. What are you guys doing? Go back to bed, Pablo. We're just recording our podcast. Everybody has a podcast. Everybody has a podcast. With Ruth and Ray. Would you like to welcome people at the top this time? I tend to be the first one talking. Oh, well, that's very gracious of you. Okay, so how, what do you say when you intro us? You just say... Hey, everybody. Welcome to Everybody Has a Podcast with Ruth and Ray, episode two. Hi. I'm so glad you're back, if you are back. Are you back, or is this your first time? If it's your first time, I hope you have a lot of fun. So we dropped the first episode as a bonus episode on the uh, George Bailey Was Never Born feed, and we've been kind of monitoring the data. So we actually got a decent number of, of listeners who probably aren't our friends. They're just people who actually came to us through Bailey, which is kind of exciting. It is. I'd like to know what they thought about the first episode. I, I listened to it, obviously, because I was curious how we sounded together and if we made any sense on our topics and so on. And I was pretty happy with our first episode. I think it gave a little glimpse on us. I definitely think there's a lot of details about us that I think people would enjoy listening to. But all in all, I think we're off to a good start. We've gotten some good feedback. Yeah, we've gotten some good feedback. A few friends who listened and... Well, obviously, the best feedback we've gotten is uh, Pablo making his little debut on our intro. Yeah? Is that what you're hearing? What are you hearing? (laughs) That's all I'm hearing. Oh, Pablo. Because I put the first two minutes and 30 seconds or so up on Instagram. Ah. And you hear the intro and a little bit of us talking and, you know. So you're feeling good. Yeah, I'm feeling good. Let's do this. Yeah, well, uh, let's see. So I, I don't want to get too far into future episodes without um, in, at least letting people know what guests they're in store for later. So let's start doing that a little bit earlier, and then let's we can get it. into our chitty chat. Love it. So if you stay with us here past our chitty chat, uh, you'll you'll be coming to um, Kurt Engfer and Elizabeth Marcus, who are being uh, – they are another husband and wife team, and uh, they also work in – primarily uh, documentary and are best known for, uh, in particular, uh, two Michael Moore movies that were two of the biggest hits of all time in documentary, Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11. And we get into all kinds of cool stuff with them. They tell some insider Michael Moore stories. So if you stick around, uh, it's a really fun conversation. And uh, we get into some inside baseball and, you know, being in the documentary world from one husband and wife to another they tell an adorable story about how they met through they a personal have ad. the cutest meet cute story yeah it's very like 90s too right don't yeah. you feel it like almost i i can almost imagine it like you know she's she's over it and writing this ad in the la weekly was yeah. it or something like that yeah. right and and he's just like 
of course, reading the LA Weekly and turning the pages and sees this ad and responds to it. And it's just it's it's a total meet cute. And they're still together after all this time and working together and in the same industry, honestly, gave me a little bit of hope. I was like, all right. And insider stories about Michael Moore that I could tell they were being a little careful about how they walked. A right. great story about Harvey Weinstein that was that's totally worth listening to this entire <laughs> episode just to hear the impression of Harvey Weinstein in the edit room. Um, Lost Classic, basically a, a documentary that was about to be huge in the UK about uh, if anybody's into the Welsh alt-rock band uh, Manic Street Preachers. And we listened to the music because I hadn't listened to the music. And it's really good. It reminded me a little bit of, uh, I mean, if that punk in the 90s was so good, especially in Europe, I feel. Yeah. I feel like punk, to me, American punk has always been awful. I've just never liked it, except for Ramones. Yeah, the, basically that's what I was gonna say. Just the Ramones, but maybe maybe I'm not educated on this. I mean, I'm not. It's not really my my genre of music. Like it, I barely listen to punk, but I really liked this band, and I it reminded me of a uh, obviously like a British version of the Cranberries. The Cranberries is more soulful. Stick around for a great convo <laughs> with Kurt Engfer and Elizabeth uh, Marcus, and uh, they mentioned at one point. Uh, their first date is a, an up movie, and you were like, "Ah, oh, you you were briefly oh, yeah. kind of like, oh, what's that? I could tell you were kind of a little bit like, oh, but you know those, right? It was this. There was seven up and fourteen up, and then every seven years, uh, Michael Apted ended up doing like reconnecting with the same group of what started out as kids, and then they become adults. It's one of the most famous doc franchises ever, but okay. most people don't have the patience for it. <sighs> this is gonna sound bad, but no, I didn't. I have never seen this documentary. Actually, I'm surprised if you've never shown it to me. I'm not that um, huge a fan. I like the concept, uh, but so it's that's hard why. to watch it. So you know, you know which version I like the <laughs> the what's his name the Link Letters yeah. version. Boyhood. <laughs> yes, Boyhood. Yeah. Boyhood to me is the is my version of that documentary that I actually want to see. I agree. And by the way, but Boyhood, what an underrated, phenomenal movie. Linkletter, for years I would say he was my favorite director. He's definitely top yeah. five. Patricia Arquette in that movie. Oh, what a beautiful actress. Anyway. Well, speaking of, that's a good segue. I was thinking maybe we should start to... I'm taking a cue from our friends Zaki Hassan and Brian Hall, who had us on their show Movie Film Podcast. They always do a little catch-up on, like, what are you watching, what are you listening yeah. to? Since we're podcasters, is there a podcast that you're into right well, now? Well, before I even get to that, I do want to say the following. that And, and I'm going to borrow from one of my favorite morning shows where they announce the donkey of the day. Mm. <laughs> the Breakfast Club. I love that show. Um... Charlemagne always, Charlemagne the God, if you know, you know, uh, announces the donkey of the day. And I am the donkey of the day. I am the burra of the day. And that's because I kept calling Elizabeth of Kurt and Elizabeth Liz as if I'm her bestie. I heard it happen. Well, not just as if you're, there's there's the presumption she ever goes by Liz, even with the bestie. And that's the thing. I don't know what what it is inside of me that I, she to me just seems like, a, you know how some people just seem like a, another another version of their name? Like, yeah. you know that I have this problem. Like, and my she problem was very is that, clear in drawing her line with you that she is not a Liz. She is Elizabeth. So I I am an asshole. I totally disrespected documentary royalty. Like, that's so... Yet another reason to listen all the way to the end of the podcast to hear uh, Ruth put her foot in her mouth for a quick second, but then then graciously make her way out. Now, Elizabeth loved you. Uh, But the the question was, uh, before the donkey subject came up, you were, uh, (laughs) I'd asked you, like, what podcast you're listening to? Uh, Okay, so I'm not listening to a single new podcast 
uh, to be honest, because I have been focusing on being a couch potato. Mm. Now, for context, people are listening to this probably first week of uh, the new year. So happy new year, everybody. Happy new year. Um, but yeah, we're, we're recording this still in the midst of the, the post-Christmas, just pre-New Year's fog. Yeah. Uh, and it's been wonderful. And boy, has it been a fog. But yeah, it's been nice. I've, I've never, uh, I feel like I'm becoming one with the couch. <laughs> It's great. <laughs> it's really nice, actually, because, you know, we never have time to watch movies together. We just don't anymore. And it's like our favorite thing to do together. Besides taking long walks that are aimless, mm -hmm. like we really do like to watch movies together. OK, first of all, I don't know what possessed me to watch The Godfather the day after Christmas. But to me, that just seemed perfect. right. I know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why we didn't get to part two. Now, part well, two is either. a Christmas movie. Well, they both got some Christmas, don't they? I don't know. Next was Back to the Future 2. And I don't know why. OK, we decided on two because it was the most fun for kids. Like, we remember that one being the most fun as kids. So we thought Pablo might enjoy it. He's about to turn five. And he is showing that he can watch a live action movie. And so we're trying to find ones that, like, he should see that he'll enjoy with us. Play the trailer for Back to the Future 1, which is obviously everyone knows the superior movie. Yeah. We get to the end of the trailer. My boy breaks my heart. And <laughs> I go, what did you think of that? And he goes, I didn't think it was very good at all. <laughs> so then I, I go, wait a minute, I got this. I'm going to play part two's trailer. And he sees the flying car yeah. and, the, and the other stuff, the hoverboard and all that. And he's like, maybe. And we put it on. Yeah. So what happened? So in the first sequence, we're on the couch, you know, hanging out. And actually, I'm, I'm doing stuff. And you guys are more intently watching. And all I hear, like, after the liftoff and that first opening roads, sequence. Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. Right. Yeah. We don't need no roads. And so it, the DeLorean, you know, lifts off and Pablo goes, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. And, and then I just yelled at you, like, over a couple of bedrooms over. I'm like, did you record that? Because it was so sweet. It was per He had, like, perfect timing on the reaction. I was like, yeah, that is cool. That's and then a few minutes cool. later, he was he was asleep. And uh, then we made him finish the movie like a day or two later, and he yeah. seemed to enjoy it pretty well. All yeah, in all. he thought he he like me and most people thought that really the most fun part was the part when they're in the future mm. with all the fun future stuff, and and then the rest of the movie's trash. Yeah, you and I. So, and this we probably need to save the Back to the Future two conversation we really for another will. podcast. We really will. But uh, but your whole thing was the. You'd spent five years, well, people spent five years from the first movie waiting for, uh, we knew at the end of the first one, they head off into 2015, so yeah. everyone's looking forward to that, and then you're only there for what, like a half hour, 40 minutes, and then the yeah. rest of the movie's off on and something And you're having else. so much fun, so why would we leave this time zone? <laughs> yeah, now my argument is that Back to the Future 2 is like the most interesting uh, plot structure of any Hollywood movie, and that you've essentially got a short film with its own conflict and resolution for uh, the future. You've got the middle part where they, they're like playing with Pottersville yeah. and evil alternate 1985 and it goes really dark and it's weird. And then you got the last part where I believe Zemeckis and Gale, once they had the epiphany that they were, for the first time could do a sequel where they went back and screwed with the first movie, mm -hmm. where they went back inside it, they were like, we got to do that. We're going to the, he's going back into the fifties, Johnny be good. And we're going <laughs> to, and we're going to create tension around all the stuff that's happening around I wanted it. to go back to the future, literally the future. <laughs> he just wanted to go back to the future. <laughs> I could have gone to even more future i mean they could have pushed another 50 years i just i just did not want to go back in time again so one idea i had by the way in in the spirit of keeping people in uh in the world of our kind of like life in the media and how things are going is that uh it's about to be the new year we're coming off of george bailey was never born uh, uh being 
successful enough that perhaps we can go back to iHeart and pitch some podcasts and take this around to other companies and say, look, we just did this. We'd like to do something like it, but this. Mm -hmm. And I'd be interested to know uh, which of our ideas the audience thinks are are the biggest winner. But this feels like a good place to mention that one of the ideas we're kicking around is – uh, let's call it Marty McFly was never born. <laughs> right. A ten yeah. episode look at like us and Back to the Future, something to that effect. Yeah. So let us know out there if you think that's and a and big this winner. by the way once again it's like deja vu. It is my idea and my encouragement. I'm like right, just do things on things that you love. Yes, you love politics and journalism and finding the story and like. Yes, go you on that, but don't forget about your other lighter, brighter side that at the end of the day, you find the politics in anyway, like we spoke about earlier. So I won't give the exact numbers uh, for George Bailey, but I will say that uh, iHeart gave us a a number of uh, audience that they felt was kind of their acceptable minimum that that, like the podcast had achieved enough that it was worth it to them for a 10 episode audio documentary. And we look to be hitting by the end of this week about double that number yay. so not a, yay so not like a huge <laughs> smash hit that everyone in the world knows but but respectable respectable enough that maybe we can get a next thing off the ground sure um and yeah and so i guess i'm so now it's sort of what do we what do we come to them with what's the logical next step do we take this audience that we built here and try to do something that will appeal to them i've been telling you five more mm. episodes of george bailey not not enough that they got to come in for a massive amount of cash, but enough that we're dropping new episodes next year and then going after the audience that just didn't get to hear about it this time around. That's maybe would be very interested. Hey, man, I'm open to all possibilities. That's where I am. We're pitching uh, the the Van Doren Stearns, the uh, the grandchildren of the guy who wrote the original short story behind It's a Wonderful Life, that who we formed a relationship with. Uh, are looking forward to hearing our pitch on a docu series based on George Bailey. Uh, in january so we're pulling that together and uh so so i don't know here's hoping we can get a docuseries off uh i've got a book um agent who you know if he likes the proposal is going to shop this around as a book so maybe this can be in bookstores next december that would be cute i would like like a coffee table book on if george bailey was never born and i have this idea that you're going to roll your you're going to like fight me on it because it doesn't sound like a winner but every year Hundreds of theaters around the country pay a license to do a version of an It's a Wonderful Life play in December, mm. and it must be getting old. Even for them, as much love <laughs> as they may have for it, they must be tired of doing this. And I have this idea to do sort of a modernization, uh, a George Bailey Was Never Born play. Really? That would take you into some of the nonfiction stuff that we bring people into, like Capra's life and Philip Van Doren Stern's life and this stuff. But like the classic scenes that you want from a Wonderful Life play, they get performed. They just get performed within the context of... Of the FBI monitoring them because <laughs> you know because 1947 they're reporting to J Edgar Hoover that it's uh, so, subversive. So just you know? a present day version of It's a Wonderful Life. It'll jump all around just like ours does. It'll take okay. people to all these st- and you know you can imagine it like our town with like you know the spotlights going in and out to reveal you know to take us from. You think you're watching the the iconic happy ending final scene of It's a Wonderful Life, but actually what you're watching is the recording of the start of the SNL but the, parody. But, but then what happens it. is that Garth shows up and yes. he's like, exactly stuff like that. He he looks at Mary and he goes, swing. They're singing all old Lang Syne, and all of a sudden somebody playing Billy Crystal from Harry Met Sally like steps in and he's like, what does this song even mean? Did you hear about Billy Crystal? No. He got his uh, presidential freedom medal. What do they call that? The, the 
Oh, what's it? That oh, is man. awesome. Yeah. Wait, wait, no, not Presidential not, Medal of Freedom. Wait, no, I messed up. Not that. <laughs> Hold on, not that guy. The Kennedy. Oh, he got. Oh, the Kennedy Center. Yes. Honors. Oh, the wow. Kennedy Center honors. Or did he get it like a Mark Twain, or he got a Kennedy? He got oh, a Kennedy. Oh my Center. God. Oh shit. Now maybe I really fucked it up. Oh, see, this is what happens when I don't actually read the article. I just cruise through it. I think. So he got an award we could only hope for in our wildest dreams. He got a lifetime award that he totally deserves. Yeah. Listen, no, I amazing. love Billy Crystal. I think he's precious and adorable. Like, I, like. Billy, Marty, and Steve, right? They're like the trifecta of funny, of old school funny to me. I, lo- I loved them growing up. Can I recommend a favorite. podcast? Yeah. Because it'll jump off of, so we were just talking Billy Crystal and When Harry Met Sally. Oh, yeah. Directed by Rob Reiner, who's another one who, like Linkletter, doesn't get mentioned in the serious director conversations, but I think he's one of the greatest oh, of all he's time. he's so great. Number yeah. of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have this theory that he goes in and he does a movie that completely does the best version ever done done in that movie genre and then he just moves on to another genre so he did like it the best romantic comedy of all time you know that's my favorite romantic comedy of all time best is romantic Harry comedy Sally. best courtroom drama uh, a few good men you can't yeah. handle the truth um best fantasy movie the princess bride best coming of age movie yeah. stand by me uh, uh, the invention of the uh docu uh parody with Spinal Tap. I mean, uh, this guy is epic. You know epic. what? Do a, do a podcast on him instead. I'd rather hear that. Well, I I'd think rather I work on with from him. It's a wonderful life. I think I'm. I mean, look. Every time I mention this to one of my partners, <laughs> who like everyone kind of gives me the same look, like, dude, is there really more to say? You know but, what it was? It's that we've all been knee deep for one year hmm. that we need like a recess. You know, when you've just been like intensely into something and you've given like we've all been pregnant, we all gave birth to the baby, and so now we're just now we need some resting yeah. time. <laughs> Okay, well, I brought up Rob Reiner. We're having the other baby. Because Reiner has been doing some stuff in the documentary space, and normally I get pissed off when Hollywood guys come on into doc because I'm like, can you just stay in your right, area where you're true. super successful? But yeah. Even though a lot of, like, Spike Lee is very good in doc and so forth. Scorsese, of course. Mm. But my point is, so Rob Reiner did an HBO doc on his, his friend Albert Brooks, and it's awesome. Uh, nice. So check that out on HBO Max. On oh, Max. yeah, we watched it together. Yeah. We watched it twice. Yeah. And it's great. And he's got another one coming next year, and I can't remember what it's about right now, but if you Google Rob Reiner documentary trailer, it looks like it's going to be important and interesting. But I bring this up because he, with Soledad O'Brien, did a podcast that's still dropping new episodes with the most mundane title. It's Who Killed JFK? And even though you might say to yourself, what is there we could possibly still need (laughs) to know about who killed JFK? I started listening because my dad recommended it to me. And Rob Reiner telling you the newest, like basically the full story of what he believes happened to JFK is like amazing. So if you get a chance, y'all, it's another iHeart podcast. Rob Reiner, Soledad O'Brien, who killed JFK? Love it. Man, I need some water, but we can't have water in the studio. Uh, We're uh, recording in a uh, prison studio. (laughs) (laughs) Please write us letters. (laughs) So uh, I don't know if it'll make the cut, uh, but I I was thinking that I should tell a couple couple little of my Michael Moore stories before we go into this uh, episode with the makers of you know, best known for two great Michael Moore movies. So before that, is there anything that's on your mind this week? Since this is going to come out on well a little bit after the New Year, very quickly, do you have any? New Year's resolutions, hopes, aspirations. Do you believe in resolutions? I have actively avoided uh, an, like an official New Year's resolution for a long time, but I always start the year with 
uh, some ideas on what, what I want to focus on or improve about myself. So I, 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 but I don't like to say them out loud. Sometimes even to you, <laughs> it feels like a promise that I'm destined to fumble on. So it's more like my own personal mental. But yeah. you know what I have been doing the last several years? Um, there, there's a board that I keep in my office that I, I restart on the first Monday of every new year. And I put up all the projects and all the people that I think I could be working with this year. I call it your connect. your crime scene wall. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. you lay it out like an investigative FBI agent. You're like, you're like do, do yeah, you Yeah, there's like lines yes, between there's, there's like string and, and shit. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, what in the... <laughs> and the batting average has been good. So I'll review it. it. Good. it I'll review good. it at the end of the year and I'll be like, oh, I thought I was going to work with that person and they disappeared on me and nothing happened with that person. But about <laughs> two thirds of these projects happened happen in one form or another or I work last year it was awesome because I had my buddy Ryan Pennington who's out in LA he's a great filmmaker in his own right what's up Ryan uh and he I had his picture on the board the entire year Mm. but didn't even have a phone call with the guy Mm -hmm. and then in December I needed somebody to come out to Seneca Falls and shoot and film with me and record with me for the for the for the George Bailey podcast and he ended up being available and he comes out and we had this great buddy time in Seneca Falls at the Wonderful Life Festival for a few days just like sing single guy in it and uh and he won the cinnamon eating contest and in your <laughs> face the local who'd like won three years in a row and was like what up la in the house i can't believe he won and I he know. had like a technique like how do you come up with the technique for cinnamon rolls like on the fly <laughs> he like did, to though. eat it like a, in a food competition and he so wouldn't funny. stop talking about it too he's like the mistake everybody makes ray you know he would just keep giving me the remember, you know. remember that show on the food network about with about that guy who just like ate all of the food competitions, obstacles, whatever around the nation. What was his name? Alan or something? No idea. Yes, you do. You watched like every season with me. Oh, dri- been... diners, drive-ins, and no, dives? that's Guy Fury. Yeah. It was the other guy. Was like, oh my god, it's gonna kill me. You gotta Google it or something at some point. But any Didn't anyway, he, that like, was they had to like stop because he was gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just I I think that. Uh, that your friend Ryan should take over his place. <laughs> I was disappointed he couldn't come this year and, uh, you know, defend the title. Oh, man. I can't believe you didn't try to defend it for him. I should have. Yeah. But uh, we were having the event. We were having our live George Bailey event. I, and then you had to run a 5K after and that. And then I ran a 5K. I mean, could you imagine running a 5K with, like, five pounds of Cinnabon in your stomach? That would have been bragworthy. <laughs> I win the Cinnabon contest, go do my live event, run my, like, 5K when I barely run and then just like violently throw up at the end (laughs) and then just violently throw up at the end um well that sounds like you have a manifestation board on your hands so that's pretty cool what about you um start a year oh man i am i i have so many resolutions every year for the for the year i have so many i start with like 20 um and usually i mean you can't make everything happen but usually something happens so I'm very happy that we're doing this podcast because this was definitely something that I've been wanting to manifest for many years now and could never figure out the formula Mm -hmm. until I like beat you down and and threatened you basically Mm -hmm. to to do this with me. So I was scared. Thank you so much for being here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, but seriously, is this not fun? Are we not having fun? It's great. And it's honestly, are we not having fun? Uh, no, it, it it's it actually I think is really good for our marriage because yeah you know at, so the longer you're married and you have kids it's harder to find quality time together and if you do a podcast together every week and you do an interview with some folks every week that you got to prep for and, and we all this only stuff, have one kid 
that's the sad part. It's like you you work so hard and I work so hard that like with just one kid, it's like, where is the time to hang out? Well, it's a pleasure to spend time with you. <laughs> and it's great creating something with you because two it things we fun. do it's well fun. throughout our relationship. We travel well together yeah. and we create well. Together. This is true. Yeah. And we both love doing both of those things. We created Pablo. That was our best. Uh, that, we nailed so it on cheesy. that creation. Stop. All right. So um, I'm not, I can't tell you all of my all of my plans and hopes for the year because I also am a little bit uh, uh What's that word? Like, I'm a little bit su- superstitious, right? Like, a little bit about saying things out loud. So I, I am going to mention, though, that I obviously every year just want to be a better version of myself. So, like, whatever that means to me, try to do that. I want to, now that we've figured out uh, how to make a podcast happen after me, like, begging you to do this with me for a decade and finding our stride, I want to find my stride in finally writing that cookbook that so many people tell me to do. Mm. And I haven't been on my game with my food blog as much as I would like to, although I did have a streak there for a little bit um, in creating really fun videos and content. tent and instructionals and everything um just because we got so busy it's like full-time job full-time parenting full-time life plus the podcast plus this but it's it got to be too much but i want to uh keep cooking and keep sharing my veganish lifestyle and ideas because at some point in this podcast we will get into that and why it matters or it's important or why anyone would think that it's interesting i'd like to get into it more on the weekly because for a long time that was uh what many people would have said was your brand that they think of when they think of your brand so i think it's odd that we'd get two episodes in and barely mention food and vegetarianism and stuff so right right well i mean food isn't really like super exciting to talk about that's that's the thing it's like really because it seems to have become like an emergent genre of media well for me it's exciting but i don't think it's very exciting for people Generally the way you do listen. it, the way you do it is exciting, and I'm not. I, I wouldn't kiss Ruth's butt uh, with anything that I didn't actually believe. But when I became a vegetarian, when we started dating 14 years ago, I thought it was going to stick about as long as one of my quitting smokings. Uh, and <laughs> and it actually, by and large, I do eat meat occasionally still, but uh, but it's pretty minimal. And uh, by and large, I've been able to make a real go of it, and it's because of the way you introduce everything from how you grocery shop to how you order at Mm -hmm. restaurants and on and on. And I think that's where you do something that I don't see anyone else do. And it makes it really fun. And it's kept me uh, an excited vegetarian for like 14 years. I do have a way of making veganism and vegetarianism fun. I do think that's a skill, right? Um, So I want to do a cookbook on that. Um, I want to make it like short, like a small one that could fit in a purse or a pocket that's like college kid friendly, like beginner friendly, like very, yeah, beginner friendly content, just like, you know, less than 100 pages, like even 100 is too many, like maybe 50 pages Mm. or something, simple illustrations, life tricks. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But I'm I'm putting it to the universe. I really want to do it sometime this year. The Michael Moore. Can I tell some Michael Moore stories? <laughs> yes, please? tell us so some Michael Moore stories. So we got these guests who, who who collaborated with Michael on two of his best known films. The really the aside from Roger and Me, the, these are the two films that made the Michael Moore mythos, the brand. And uh, my my personal story with Michael Moore, right? So. I'm in film school. I have no plans to do documentary. I think I'm going to do narrative films. Mm. And then I see Bowling for Columbine in the movie theater. And uh, it just, it, it was like, I was like, oh, you can do that? You can make a movie that like persuades while entertaining to like your point of view of the world or your politics or your whatever. I was like, that 
is exactly what I want to be doing. Mm. And uh, and so then I had this running bit of bad luck where every time I picked a project that I was doing, Michael Moore would do it better first. <laughs> and it happened over and over again. So the next the first film I did out of college was about a group of 9-11 widows who were fighting for transparency and accountability in the 9-11 attacks that had killed their husbands. And before I can get it finished, because it takes so long to keep raising the money and then making more and then so on and so forth, mm-hmm. Michael Moore drops the most popular, you know, like film. <laughs> Film of a documentary of all time, Fahrenheit 9-11 and 04. And it's kind of like, well, do I even need to bother finishing mine? I, yeah. I did, but uh, yeah. And then uh, and then the guy who helped us finish the funding for that movie, he's, he's a doctor. Yeah. And he's like, you know, the healthcare system is all screwed up, oh, right? right? Yeah. And we need to do something on like healthcare. And I go, well, I actually am seeing in the trades that Michael Moore seems to be working on something about healthcare. And this doctor is like, oh, there's room for two films about healthcare. But Michael <laughs> Moore does Sicko. And then I'm in, and then we end up putting out, actually, we never finished it. We were going to call it Buying the Farm, P H A R M. I always like that idea. Yeah. 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 And then uh, jump to 2008, the financial crisis happens. And I'm working for, and essentially a mentor of mine is Danny Schechter, the news dissector, who has just written a book predicting the financial crisis, predicting it will be because of the housing bubble, like exactly how it went down. He was ahead of the curve. So I'm in his office and he's like, let's start shooting shooting the movie like, by the way whenever it. whenever you talk about denny Schechter, the news dissector I, into... I i i feel like it's you it's like morty and marty yeah well he, he's got he had this way of talking and like and he was a total pain in the ass but in the most <laughs> lovable way but may he like, rest in power right what you got to do is uh you see me i'm getting thirsty here you're giving an interview <laughs> with me now what you want to do is you want to go get me some water in fact make sure it's something with uh, a little sparkling water how about that's like that's real good i'm teaching you you're gonna be a good producer someday ray oh. so <laughs> so, but no, but so we're working immediately, moment one on an inside the financial crisis thing with the guy who predicted it and uh, who comes along and beats us to the punch, Michael Moore with Capitalism, a love story. So uh, I had yeah. this running thing going on, but I met uh, right after I moved in with you in 2010, right after we got together. Um, uh, I, we were still working on buying the farm. Yeah, P-H-A-R-M, I remember that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I reached out to guys I thought were had a track record for doing funny stuff within Doc, and one of them was Kurt Engfer. Mm. And so Kurt, uh, Kurt and I, Kurt was like nice enough to actually kind of take my call, basically. And years later, when we were trying to come back to New York, he uh, a chance meeting with him straight from the airport ends up sending me to Vice which ends up allowing both of us to move to New York. And mm-hmm. things didn't really work at Vice, but they ended up working elsewhere But uh, because of that. Um, so in a weird kind of way, my weird Michael Moore connect seems to keep weaving back and forth into my I life. I love it, yeah. yeah. And remember that one time you had Chinese food with Michael Moore? Okay. At Joe's Shanghai? So real quick, three times <laughs> I met Michael Moore in my life. One, I'm working on the 9-11 documentary, and he comes to town for like a speaking tour, and I, I get like backstage to do press with him, and I get to ask him some questions. Yeah. Second time, you and I are flying to our first major film festival for anything that I, like, that, that I had produced right. with Barbara couple miss sharon jones still very proud of my small role in that and we're on the same plane to toronto as michael who's going for his own film Mm -hmm. and because i know that he knows barbara koppel i'm able to start a conversation with him about how he should come see our new barbara koppel well fun fact michael moore became a documentary filmmaker because of barbara koppel and they're like and you became a documentary filmmaker because of michael moore so it's like 
your story is so interesting. In fact, just a month ago, I turned Barbara down and she asked me, she was giving Michael Moore a Lifetime Achievement Award and she asked me if I would uh, help write the speech uh, for him. She thought it would be perfect and oh, I was man. feeling a little butthurt about some things at the time. Oh, and I said, Ray, no, I think, burning bridges I think again, that's a Ray. No, I think that's a no. But anyway, <laughs> and then the third time I met him was thanks to Barbara. It was uh, Where to Invade Next was his new movie and he was doing like a friend's uh, screening to get some feedback and after and she brought me to that which was really sweet and then afterwards he hosted at this uh is it shouldn't use it's this I thought famous it was Joe's Shanghai or Joe Shanghai it definitely wasn't Shanghai oh it wasn't oh shit but it's this it famous like... mid like upper it's a midtown, midtown yeah. Chinese restaurant yeah midtown with this glowy West, right? red inside and he had the whole place to himself is it red Joe's red Joe oh man I can't think of it but no I, I love Michael Moore but the guy the guy knows how to talk right he likes to talk <laughs> and he just spent about the first hour uh, in the center of everybody just giving like a big speech and making jokes and then like John Stossel would yell like I don't agree with that at all and it was like it was more weird, crab you know? ragoon yeah exactly <laughs> And finally, I go up to Michael uh, after a couple drinks later in the night, and I my pitch to him was that I thought the the progressives should try to steal the best ideas from the libertarians as a way to finally diffuse this like 50-50 battle between the left and the right. And I thought it was kind of a brilliant thought that would lead to conversation, and it was clear he didn't care for the thought and didn't really want to talk about it too much with me. So I, I went over and hung with drunk John Stossel, who's a total asshole. It's like that scene from... Um... Oh, what is the one that you love when they're in Hawaii and they break up? Uh, saving Sarah Marshall. Yes. Or, no, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And what's his face? <laughs> he's like talking to the rock star. He's giving him his demo. Right. And he's like, I'll just go fuck myself. <laughs> I felt like that was you and Michael Moore. That was like, absolutely me. He was, like, he was like, yeah, mate, I'll listen to it later. And he's like, I'll just go fuck myself. <laughs> yeah, the, the the only like a- animation I got out of the guy was uh, when was when I reminded him like I'm I, I got in with Barbara Koppel I'm that Barbara Koppel producer and he was like well that's a good place to be with and Jonah like, Hill yeah. that's what I can't I can't remember yeah Jonah, Jonah Hill, Hill. Jeez. oh I forgot about that line because one of my favorite lines I think of all the time is from Superbad where he goes uh, hey fuck me right oh yeah <laughs> I always want to send that meme. Like, I'm so tempted so many times to send the Jonah Hill, hey, fuck me, right? You need that t-shirt. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, let's get let's get this interview going. Without further ado, introducing um, uh, sometime solo artist Kurt Engfer, sometime husband and wife team Kurt Engfer and Elizabeth Marcus. Uh, here they are. Hello. Hello. Hey. Hey. Okay, finish. Hold on, Ray. Hey, okay, good. Ruth actually had the idea to have you on a, on our second episode now that we're doing a weekly because, um, you know, I get the sense, Kurt, sometimes you're a, you're a solo artist and sometimes I'm a solo artist, but uh, a lot of times we, we work as a husband and wife team. How would you how would you all describe your working relationship and your relationship? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I don't think we've ever really thought about that because it just comes naturally to us. Um, did we, did you guys meet working with each other? Like, was it always a working relationship and, the, and then it was a relationship? Or how did, how did that work? No, we actually met through a personal ad that I placed in the LA Weekly hmm. uh, that Kurt wasn't even looking for. He was looking for a comic that was printed on the page. And my ad happened to be somewhere like right next to that or something and he had a friend who basically dared him to answer my ad 
and it was the last personal ad I was ever going to place because I had placed several and met lots and lots of losers, and it was and it was the first and only personal ad that Kurt was ever going to answer because wow. What was in this ad? I need I need details now. Well, what's amazing also, she's not telling you, is that it was voted ad of the week and they gave her <laughs> two extra weeks. And I responded on the last of the extra weeks. And, and I almost oh. didn't even I almost didn't even open the letter that he wrote me because I was so sick of all the losers by then. And they had at the time you could answer by phone message or, and I put on my phone message, you know, if you really want to intrigue me, you can write me a letter. And I had a post office box and I went to the post office box and I got, you know, got my mail and here's this letter. And I was like, Oh no, not another one of these. And I stuffed <laughs> it into my purse and it could have stayed there for months except that like a week or two later, I cleaned my purse out and I almost threw it away. But I thought, well, this guy, whoever he is, he took the time to write to me. I might as well open it. And it was just this funny, clever, terrific letter. And so I wrote back and he wrote back and I wrote back again and he wrote back again. And then we decided to go out. And for our first date, we went to see a documentary. <laughs> of course you did. Which one? Uh, it was uh, 35 Up. Oh, okay. I've, I've never seen that one. Yeah, Kurt, very, very kind of hesitantly, he says, I don't know if you'd be interested in this at all, but there's this guy in England. He's been making this series of films where every seven years he interviews these people. And I said, oh, um, the next Up movie is out? <laughs> <laughs> And, so, and then you guys knew eventually you'd get married right at that moment, right? <laughs> yeah. Right after the screening, just go to Vegas, call it a day. Exactly. <laughs> but, but we didn't actually start. Well, I mean, we sort of worked together before that. We wrote a spec script for Star Trek that got ignominiously rejected. And we did some writing together, but we didn't actually work together, especially not in film and video. Um, until we started working on... I sucked her into the film video vortex by um, when I was working uh, on Bowling for Columbine with Michael Moore. Um, at that point, there was a bare-bones skeleton crew and there was only... There was three people on staff. And um, we were rattling around this big... You know, he had half of a floor of a uh, high-rise in Manhattan for his offices. And uh, they were the offices he used for the TV show, The Awful Truth, uh, so which was a giant show with tons of people running. There was like over 60 people, so the offices had to be really big. And um, mm. But by the time he's doing Columbine, there's only three people on the staff. There's Michael, his assistant Maureen, me, and the um, associate editor Woody. And uh, the computers, um, you know, were Macs, and they'd been running, you know, nonstop for, uh, you know, three years, and no one had done any. We didn't have IT department at the time or anything. All the editors were kind of responsible for just kind of cleaning the computers up as they go along, you know, making sure that there's memory and some drives and not too much digital garbage. And 
But after years and years and years and tons of editors and people working on them, oh, the computers and the, the infrastructure, digital infrastructure in the office was just garbage. Elizabeth um, had been a computer technician. She ended up working on all the computers in the office. And then um, I said to her, I said, um, I found this box of material. And in this box, there's a CD on it. And the CD were the 911 calls from um, Littleton High School in, uh, in Colorado, where the Columbine shooting happened, or Columbine High School in Littleton, where that all happened. And uh, they had, um, they had um, uh, compressed them using a really weird program that you couldn't really access very easily. Yeah, you could play them, but... There were these big long files and there were several tracks in each file so that when you played them you had a whole bunch of stuff on top of each other and so they weren't really usable, usable in that form and so i did some sleuthing and i found a program that enabled me to separate out all the tracks and then edit them she, you know, we thought it was going to take like a couple hours or something, you know, to figure out what to do. And then I, she turned it over to me, right? Well, it turned out mm -hmm. there was about 30 hours of non-continuous, strange audio from these 911 calls that was completely unusable. And I said, wow, this sucks because it sounds like there's almost something great here. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what you need to do is you need to to re-piece all of these weird non-continuous calls together and form complete coherent sentences by for each call. I'm like, but that could take <laughs> what a days. And she's like, oh, I don't have anything else to do. Three months later, wow. she wow. she got she gave me 30 minutes of material. And that 30 minutes I took and, and made it the five minutes that you had. And that became the uh the 911 call montage that's in Bowling for Columbine. Mm. Which are so powerful, so well done, and it like, and it was instrumental because what y'all needed to do at that point in the movie is turn this like gut punch of this moment into hatred for the NRA, which comes immediately thereafter. <laughs> so had you had you you know had you not nailed that exact feeling that was required, which I imagine was extremely tricky. Oh yeah, with all the material to go through and get down to. Oh, um, and you know, and she along the way she'd go, hey. I think this is one of the kids' dad calling, and it was. And you know, we did. She discovered things that no one else had known even existed. Like one of the dads of the kids, one of the shooters' kids in Columbine, calling nine one one and saying, "I think one of those guys is my son." You know. Oh wow. And 
all of these kind of weird little snippets of people, kids calling and parents calling and that just, it, it was this cacophony of insanity that. It's like, well, it's like all of a sudden you're a forensic, uh, like an investigator. You know what I mean? Like it's like editing forensics. Oh, that's, that's exactly. And then, and then she did such a fantastic job doing that. And uh, it was great because she was in the back, sitting in the back behind me while I'm working. And she's plugging away every day. She's coming in for a few hours, like every single day. She's coming in and working. And then, uh, and then I go after she was done. I go, hey, do you interested in uh, trying to find some archival footage for me? <laughs> and then I start training her in how to be an archivist and and track down videos and things on the net and and you know who, who, what libraries had what footage and because at the time there was a lot more back in the early 2000s there was tons of weird obscure and or small uh, video archives and um, they all had their um, their listings and stuff on the net, but you couldn't find them. And or if you found them, you couldn't figure out how to access the footage. And you know, it was the internet was so new then that you know there weren't any streamlined processes. And Elizabeth figured out how to get these people, what footage they had, to get a screeners, and you know, and that was amazing. I mean, and then she you know went from there to hanging out during the edits with me and Mike and you know, offering um, little snappy one-liners that Mike would look at her and go, oh, so now I'm going to take voiceover notes from the editor's wife. And she'd go, she'd say, well, yeah, if you know what's good for you. <laughs> well, for, for our audiences who may not know this, because I was going to film school at the time, the Bowling for Columbine and then Fahrenheit 9-11 came out. And so obviously my head was very... You know, I was like trying to make a career and uh, I thought I was going to make a career in narrative film. And then I go to the theater in 2002, which would have been, I think, my junior year of college at Columbia College, Chicago. And I see Bowling for Columbine and I'm and what y'all did, like anything great. Mm -hmm made me immediately feel like, oh, I could totally do that, right? <laughs> because I, uh, you made it, you guys made it look so yeah, easy. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, this, okay, so I really wanted to talk to you guys because I think that not enough spotlight goes on to editors. I think editors, to me, there's two people that sometimes, in my opinion, matter more than a director, and that's a cinematographer and the editors. And the editor being num number one. And I, and, and I mean, once you, you're inside for a while, you start to figure out that there's a lot of times when the director may get the most acclaim, mm -hmm. but essentially it's just handing an editor uh, like just years of just messy footage and kind of going, find the story in there, bring it back to me and I'll give you some notes. <laughs> did, you, did you feel that Michael Moore was a good, I mean, did you guys co, I, I assume you co-edited a lot, right? With some of his direction or was it more of like you guys going solo with most of the editing direction? And what was the difference between the process on bowling and on Fahrenheit? Um, well, those are, there's a lot of there. There's a lot of depth to those questions. <laughs> Don't worry, it's just between us. I know. <laughs> and in your audience of fifteen, no. Um, That's yeah. right. But but maybe like a year or two years from now, it'll be an audience of a hundred. So uh, yeah, watch what. You but say, but what are the odds of them actually going back to a deep dive on your pie? Okay. Um, <laughs> so, 
Don't tempt us. <laughs> well, it's 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 complicated because the the aspect of editing in, in these kinds of situations is for the most part you need you know Mike's what I call a counterpuncher, right? Mm. There's a lot of directors who want to sit there right next to you and go, "Ooh, use that shot and put that shot next to that shot." And okay, what's next? And let's watch the footage and. And yeah, Elizabeth's going me, me. That's what I like to do. And uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and and okay. But if you use this, and you know, the arms raise too high. No, no, no. The leg looks weird. Don't use that. You know, or whatever. And uh, Mike just wants to see scenes. You know, and preferably mm. he wants to see a bunch of scenes strung together to see how it works and it's a, if there's a flow and getting in and out of the scenes and you know, because he's got a lot on his plate. So. Um, I know working, I knew how to work with Michael because I worked with him for like over a year on three different projects in the late nineties uh, on the TV show, the awful truth. And this weird show he did for uh, Britain called Michael Moore live, which was an insane talk show that was broadcast from New York into the UK live. Very odd. And, uh, so I knew how to work with Mike. I knew what, what he liked to do and how he liked to work. So he um, he likes scenes. You know, he likes to put stuff, have stuff put together so he can react to it. And that's fine because it's like whether it's good or bad, it kind of doesn't matter. He just needs to react. Like So if it's bad, he's like, Ugh, what the hell did you show me that for? I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, all right, so that direction bad. I'll go the other direction, you know? Like, it doesn't really matter to me. I, I'm, I think one of the things as an editor, you can't be invested personally with your edits. Meaning, mm. if someone says that's not good, that's not a personal attack on you. You know, yes, you put your thought into it and your hard work and you came up with great ideas. But you know what? You can have more great ideas. You can work. You're going to work hard anyway. So you just have to redo shit. And you have to do that all the time. And I think I've run into situations with editors where you're like, oh, man, dude, that's just that's not working. They're like, what do you mean it's not working? And it's like, well, that, that doesn't mean that you're not working as a person, okay? It just means that these edits aren't working. So, you know, you got to have really thick skin and you got to realize that it's, it's not personal. So I, I put mm -hmm. stuff together. Like, like you know, um, I, I put things together. And then Mike watches them. And sometimes I help out writing the voiceover or at least the first pass of a voiceover to get it to, you know, to get from one thing to another, to set up a scene. You need a voiceover so that we understand why we're looking at this. Or you, you're missing a key piece of information because you're using a whole bunch of different archival pieces and you're trying to, you know, weave things together. So Mike needs to do a voiceover to make sense of why these, all these archival pieces are supposed to be together for whatever reason. There's a lot of reasons why you may need archive or a voiceover. So, you know, um, that's how we kind of worked where he wasn't in the room very much. And I remember one time I asked him, I turned back to, cause he's at a desk behind me, like, you know, seven, eight feet behind me. He's at his own desk on a computer and he's doing whatever he's doing. I turn around and, I showed him something and he's like, yes, no, maybe. And I go, hey, 
do you like being in an edit room? I mean, is this fun for you? He's like, God, this is the worst. (laughs) What do you mean? He's like, I hate editing. Like you do. He's like, Oh, it's just, it's like pulling teeth. It's like, Oh God. And, and you know, it it needs to be done. I just don't want to be here to do it. And, uh, (laughs) I'm like, all right, thanks. Thanks a lot. So, so isn't that kind of a blessing for you though? Because then it's like, all right, we'll see you later and let me get my work done. That, thank you. Thank you. That's exact. I'm like, look, and that's kind of my, has been my uh, MO sense. It's like, look, I'm just going to do what I do and you can either get on board or you can tell me what track to get on. And yeah. And, if, if you don't have constructive criticism, then just shut up. <laughs> and, <laughs> also, this is your movie, so at some point I am going to need your input, but for now, let exactly. me put it together. No, no, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. It, is, it is not necessarily my movie, so it's, it's your job to tell me what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to be done and what we're supposed to be doing yeah. and why we're here. And if you can't answer that, then based on the footage and based on information I've gathered, either through materials or osmosis, then I'll make the best movie from the material that I have. And you can agree or you can disagree. But if you disagree, then you need to tell me why. And Right, exactly. So, yeah. And, you know, I mean, it was... Um, and, and that was the same thing. It was exactly the same process with Fahrenheit. Um, Elizabeth had a, a slightly different uh, job in Fahrenheit. She, um, we dumped um, a few hundred VHS tapes of, right. of um, old out. old westerns on her. Oh, and and oh, her right. her mission and her mission was to find to find <laughs> to find cowboys or sheriffs or deputies or something. Uh, talking about a bad guy and going, we're going to smoke him out of their hole, which, <laughs> which reinforced what Bush was saying about the search for um, Al Qaeda and bin Laden was, we're going to smoke him out. We're going to smoke him out of whatever hole he's in. And so Mike thought that was going to be, a, that would be, a, that's, Mike comes up with great ideas, great ideas. But executing them can be really hard sometimes because, you know, it's a great idea. Hey, yeah, we're going to find some old cowboys saying smoke them out. (laughs) Well, how do we do that? The United States began bombing Afghanistan just four weeks after 9-11. Mr. Bush said he was doing so because the Taliban government of Afghanistan had been harboring bin Laden. We'll smoke them out of their holes. We're going to smoke them out. Smoke them out. We'll smoke them out of this cave. Let's rush them and smoke them out. I feel like Ray and I can totally relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we share. Yeah, because Michael, Michael Moore is like a, a brand. And in the same way, you know, we've worked with Barbara Koppel, who is kind of her own brand. And it's interesting with Barbara, I, I noticed right off the bat that she does not mind uh, hearing out good ideas every from everyone from the producers to the interns. And I eventually realized that's because she knows she will ultimately get the lion's share of the credit for any good ideas used. She doesn't care where she's And Mike's the same way. Michael is exactly the same way. Michael's always like best idea wins. 
you know. Yep. Uh, and uh, yeah. Well, so on Fahrenheit. Well, yeah. Best, best idea. She best idea wins, but I get the credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's also why he takes advice from the editor's wife. That's right. That's right. Who, yep. Who's then so heartened and encouraged by her experience with that that she becomes a filmmaker herself. That's awesome. So, so you, was your first uh, time directing a documentary? Was that No Manifesto in 2015? Yes, that that was me. We're full of bile, we're full of love, we're full of hate, we're full of understanding, we're full of forgiveness, and we're full of revenge. Shut the fuck up. I just wish there weren't so many swear words in manic songs. Possibly the best band in the world. Ever. How did that come about? Well, after I worked on Bowling for Columbine with Kurt, there came a point at which there wasn't any more for me to do. And I was kind of at loose ends. Um, I had stopped working in the computer repair field and I was between jobs. I didn't have much to do. And I had gotten into this band, uh, Manic Street Preachers from Wales. I had really gotten into this band and some friends from England had sent me some TV documentaries that had been done on the band. And I thought they all kind of sucked. I didn't think any of them were very good. And so I was complaining to Kurt about that one day. I was saying, you know, this band has really interesting story. And yet all these TV programs that have been made about them are, are kind of crap. And he said, well, why don't you make a documentary about the Mannics? And I said, I don't know how to make a documentary. And he said, Yes, you do. And he right. listed off all of the things that I had done to help with Bowling for Columbine. And I said, well, that's not making a documentary. And he said, yes, it is. And <laughs> so uh, I, I, we went out and bought a, uh, a camera. And I went to uh, England. The Maddox were doing a tour at that time, a Greatest Hits tour. And I went, uh, went to England. And I just went around and interviewed a bunch of fans. And then we put together a sizzle reel, which we submitted to the band. And at first we were ignored, but a couple of years of persistence finally secured us a meeting with them and they agreed to let us make the film. And that was a fantastic adventure. It took a really long time. It was way harder than we thought it would be, but we're very proud of the results. Don't you think that that's always the case when you're making anything in entertainment is that it's always harder than you think it's going to be? <laughs> I feel like that should be that that's the that's the logo that's the slogan of filmmaking. It's going to be harder than you think. Yes, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I agree. I, well, yeah, that that's the thing they don't tell you in um in film school, right? You know, they're right. Yeah. Because in film school, you have such narrow focus. And you have access to gear, you have access to people and other students, and you you don't try to do these big scope things. And you know, it, the reality hits you when you're sitting in a room with a um, a um, music company executive. You know, you're like, oh. Yeah. You're the dick, okay? <laughs> you're the one stopping me from making my movie, and then you're like, well, mm -hmm. "What do I have to?" Because you know, you know, you go through like you go through like 
you know, making stuff and in earlier in your career, you just do it, and you don't worry about things like rights and royalties and and copyright and things, and you know, you just do it, and then yeah. all of a sudden it becomes like a job or it's real. Then you're like, well, this is a fantastic idea. You, you need clearances for everybody, releases. And you're like, huh, what? You know, nobody tells you about the the what is it the insurance of it all? Oh god! Like I had no idea that documentaries yeah. needed to be insured. I'm like, excuse me, yeah. <laughs> like this is nuts. Yeah, either. yeah, and if the insurance companies don't uh, don't agree, no one will put you out. It's like a form of censorship that like nobody really talks about. It's like you gotta 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 clear it with the insurance guys, or it's it's not making air. Yeah, E and O, errors and emissions. That's the uh, the yeah. bane of our life. You know, <laughs> I guess ENO keeps people, dare I say, honest about their journalism and documentary. Is that why that was created? Just to make sure that, like, some sort of it's a useful, yeah, mechanism for accountability. Yeah, it is. It is. But the problem is, is that, like, like your credit score, it's it's there's an obscure bureaucracy that isn't transparent <laughs> and decides things behind the scenes, and you have no input into it. Abolish credit scores. <laughs> yeah. So. You've had this career that has had these multiple impressive phases, uh, but uh, I, I would I tend to mention most the the one that most grabbed me in my younger days, the, the the Michael Moore era, and part of that is because you know people don't get it. Like when I tell people that I'm in documentary, it's very common to be like, "Oh, I love documentary. I watch a lot of documentary," <laughs> and I think there's per perception that it's more successful than it is. Uh -huh. I used to like to say if you take you take every documentary ever made and you add up how much they gross theatrically, it's still less than like the, the dark Knight. <laughs> just that one movie, you know, uh, uh, but you, you, your work with Michael Moore was a bit of an exception for this period documentary burnt like white, white hot there with, with bowling. And then the, you know, the, the Oscar for that and the controversy around the, the, anti-war speech made during that Oscar and then Fahrenheit comes out during an election season and all this it, it gets the can palm door and if I pronounce that correctly and what was your experience from the inside of being in this like very unique white hot moment for documentary and you all are behind it um it was exciting and exhausting and frustrating and sometimes joyful and oftentimes numbing. Um, so, so it sounds like the Scorsese montage. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wolves of Documentary Street. Right. Yeah, it, exact. It, the, my, my whole career was Henry Hill trying to uh, get um, uh, driving around town, making spaghetti and, and doing cocaine while being pursued by by helicopters. That's that's what it's like. Feels like doing a Michael Moore doc. Um, you know, I mean, it's uh, well, it was insane. I mean, just the phone calls you get, the, just the the weird people that wander through meetings and and strange strange um, conversations. You know. Um, having Moby wander in and offering advice on, on soundtracks and having Harvey Weinstein in the back smoking a cigar in a closed room with no ventilation um, and screaming, fuck him, 
Fuck Bush. Fuck that guy. <laughs> fuck him. Fuck you. <laughs> fuck this asshole. God damn it. Fuck you. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Okay. And then eating, and then just chowing down M&Ms like they're going, like, like this, they're oxygen. And just the combination of sweaty sweat with cigar smoke and melting chocolate was, you just, you're retching under the computer, the avid desk. You're like, Bleh! oh God, this is horrible. <laughs> and then, you know, phone calls with Jeffrey Katzenberg about from Disney about what we're doing, why we're bringing down his company and, you know, and then lawyers sitting around editing with like three lawyers going every edit I make, they, 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 each lawyer had three giant three ring binders. And every time I made an edit, you hear this, this flicking sound, like, like, you know, like, 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 like flicking sound like this, where they're going through, they're going, yes, okay, you can make that edit. Yeah, I'm like, oh God, this is horrible. And, you know, or, but then there's the flip side of that is the day that I remember the day that I found the music that went underneath the, uh, the 911 call montage that beginning of Fahrenheit, you know? And, you know, I remember um, slowing down George Bush um, reading um, My Pet Goat at the school when he found out about the planes hitting the towers and going, you know, Hmm, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know? And just, yeah. you can see the wheels turning and you're like, I have a scene, you know, mm -hmm. the day that I remembered hearing uh, Marilyn Manson song, the nobodies done acoustically um, while I was looking at the Columbine footage and going, this music is built for this scene, you know? Mm -hmm. And and there's those moments, right? Where you're like, you start putting stuff together. You're like, I have a scene. I have something powerful. I'm doing something creative and constructive. And it's also, maybe it's art or maybe it's just really good and it works the same, you know? And it it's those are all mixed together, mixed with the insanity of working like I'm, I'm Fahrenheit, man. It was it was insane hours because they actually rented a five bedroom apartment for the crew, the post crew and, and the producers and stuff, the office people to stay at because we weren't going home anymore. And so wow. we would work we'd work like like twenty hour days, go sleep for four hours and take a shower and come back. And uh, we were working around the clock. We, we had five months of 100-hour weeks. So it was the exact same setup as George Bailey was never born then. Yes. It's like the same thing. <laughs> Pretty it's much. It's like the same thing. <laughs> close. Pretty close. So, you know, I mean, uh, but then we we don't, you know, we, we all these things are going on and you're still trying to put a movie together. You're still trying to get the footage. You're still trying to get a scene. What's the best music to use underneath it? What's the best voiceover, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, everything starts locking you in. You're like, oh, this is great. This is working out. But then, you know, might get some death threats and you have to evacuate the office. You're like, oh, yeah, this is a flip side. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden there's these two burly guys standing outside the editor room door. You're like, who are they? Those are my bodyguards. 
I'm like, oh, okay. That's why you're the director and not me because you get the death threats. <laughs> you know, you know I, I feel I have to mention just because it uh, you the Mike the uh, Marilyn Manson reference. I actually was was producing a youth produced television series that aired locally in Indianapolis, <laughs> and I had set up an interview with Marilyn Manson for when he came to Indianapolis on his tour. And that, uh, that date got canceled because it was his first date. I believe he was playing music after the Columbine tragedy had taken place. So coincidentally, oh, I forgot to bad. He's great. He Marilyn was... Manson, but I had it set. <laughs> Is there anything you would do, uh, you would do differently if you all were trying to make a, a version of, of a Columbine or a Fahrenheit today? Um, it won't get made today. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I mean, I was trying to get a, a film about um, monopolies and um, how our economic structure of our culture and our society are set up to you know, uh, bring about more division and, um, more stuff, you know, and, um, you know, it, and no one wanted it. You know, in the, in the opening before you guys came on, uh, we'll have, we'll make sure to have listed a, a lot of the other phases of your career that really impressed me, but is there, I mean, I could do it really quickly here though. You know, that I was a huge fan of the yes men themselves and I love Chris Smith's work on that other yes men film. So, you know, you, you co-directed and, and edited yeah, Yes Men Fix the World, um, you know, No Manifesto. Uh, there's um, Fat, Fat sick. sick and Nearly Dead. Yeah. Which I, I was working for a boss in Austin, Texas uh, at the time who like sent an email out about that movie and about how that it had essentially saved his dad's life. And then I had I got the chance to email the CEO back and say, you know, I kind of know the guy <laughs> who helped make that. But that became a phenomenon, I know. And then uh, and Stranger Fruit about Mike Brown Jr., still the definitive account of, of you know, that from the Ferguson Uprisings. Uh, you, your work for Axios, which got you an Emmy here, uh, what, 20, in 2021, 2022? What yeah. is your favorite movie? For each of you, what is your favorite film that you've done that maybe you feel should should have been seen you know or should be better known than it than maybe it is or i don't know hmm. uh all of them except the michael yeah. Morse because I, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, they they're known right and and most of the films that we've worked on are actually really really good and are really they're valid as films and entertainment and they they deserve wider audiences than they got because of our messed up distribution system and our messed up priorities as a country and how filmmakers can't make they're the ones that don't make any money on their films everybody else makes money but not the filmmakers so you know it's just oh it's messed up um probably <laughs> the Dalton Trumbo mm -hmm. documentary I did. Um, mm -hmm. Trumbo, right? It was, Trumbo. It was called, well, it was the same name as the um, the Brian Cranston film, Trumbo, except this was the documentary, that, and that came first. You state your full name. Dalton Trumbo. 
He was Hollywood's greatest screenwriter. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! He was one of our heroes. He was an iconoclast. His words still resonate today. I dreamed that the world could be better and tried to make it so. The right man collides with the right idea at precisely the right time. I find enough to do, but don't enjoy doing it. I must make the choice of what kind of writer I want to be. Dalton Trumbo, prisoner number 7551. Mr. Trumbo, are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Um, um, that was just great. That was, that was yeah. really, you said it was your favorite film I did. Well, it was really good. It was really, really good. I don't know if I'd say it was my favorite film that yeah. you did, but it was an excellent film. Very, very interesting and entertaining. I expected it to be kind of dry, but it wasn't. Mm. It was really engaging. Um, now, of course, for me, the film that I would most like for more people to see is no manifesto, a film about Manic Street Preachers, because that was my baby, that was my passion project. I directed that film, I gave several years of my life to it, and we never even got to release it properly because uh, Sony Publishing, they, uh, they wouldn't give us the rights. They basically, we were too small time, and so mm. they just didn't deal with us. And so we, we did kind of a sort of a pirate release of it because we thought that that would get their attention so that we could then pay for the music rights and release it properly. But they never, they never did. They just completely ignored us. And we had an offer to put it on television, but we couldn't because we didn't have the rights to the music. So we couldn't and, get the E&O. Yeah, you know, so, so, we, yeah. so we, got, we got completely screwed on that. Um, we, had a great, we had a great theatrical run in in the uk and it could have kept going it was so popular it was selling out theaters all over the country it was elizabeth was on all the um, major uh networks and it was bbc and all the itv and all the other stations and stuff and it was great and people loved the film and yeah it, you know it, that's the thing right where it just sticks in it, you know, in, in the back of your mouth, you're like, oh, you have a little bit of a sour taste because you knew you were that close to having something that was going to flip over and go and hit the mainstream. And it didn't. And, and through no fault of our own. I mean, when we, like when COVID hit, all those poor filmmakers who were struggling for years and years and years and years and years, just like we did. And they were having their big festival premiere or they're having their theatrical release or they were going to whatever they were going to be doing. And all of a sudden everything just died in for like that, that year, that 2020, you know, nothing happened. So whole, a whole generation of films and filmmakers were wiped, wiped out, out and the films disappeared and the filmmakers probably disappeared and you know it just it was it was terrible you know oh, yeah so many so many great films were lost because of the pandemic yeah so you know um i mean you know there's there's other films that that we've done that um were were really great that never really got the the release they deserved for whatever reason you know the kids menu a film about um how you know 
the state of nutrition and uh, for children, which was really fun. It was a fun, cool, fast-paced, entertaining, and educational film. Got mm -hmm. a decent release, but never really broke through. Uh, Red Army with uh, Gabe, with the director Gabe Polsky, about the history of um, Soviet um, hockey and also going into Cold War and the the breaking down of the uh, Russian, uh, the USSR, the dissolving of the USSR and how hockey kind of was instrumental in helping That's bring about cool the downfall of, of the USSR. Um, did not get the the release that it deserved. Bigger, stronger, faster. Bigger, stronger, faster. Great movie. About sports. Oh, yeah. Sports and steroids and the winning at all costs attitude of America got a mm -hmm. decent release, but didn't really break through the way it should have because the distributor uh, just got tired and just said, now nah, we're done. Didn't care. Didn't care. And then, we, didn't and care. then, and then the filmmaking team wanted to do more promotions and wanted to get behind it more. And the distributor said, no. Yeah. The, the distributor threatened the filmmakers with, with lawsuits saying that they can't promote their own movie. That is so wild. What is wrong with people? <laughs> oh man. I've, I've rarely seen a distributor that actually promotes anything the way that you would assume Everyone, you know, all your friends on the outside are like, oh, wow, you got a documentary on Max. Well, that's that's all that means. It's yeah. on Max and the rest is up to you. And you, know? you make it popular because <laughs> you're not a celebrity. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. so true. Well, I want to talk a little bit about George Bailey was never born and your, oh, yeah. uh, and your amazing contributions to it. Uh, first and foremost, As we I wrap up here. Yeah, well, I really I one, I want to point out that this is the first podcast for both of you. Correct. That that you've edited? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We, and we, so what no, was that like? It was it weird. Was, it was harder than we thought it would be. <laughs> like yes, it's true. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, neither one of us are really big podcast people. Um, I do. I listen to them a little bit more than you do. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't, they're not really a part of my life. I'm not into, um, serial killers or cults. Mm -hmm. So, so that kind of limits what, <laughs> my podcasting. Uh, and I'm not really a Joe Rogan or that kind of guy, Mark Marin fan that I'm going to hang out with somebody for three hours. If I want to hang out with somebody for three hours, it's going to be my wife. <laughs> oh, that's nice, Ray. You never say things like that. If I'm going to hang out with someone for three hours, it's going to be Ruth. <laughs> well, that's partially why we started this podcast, so we could hang out for about three hours a week. You know, doing this, uh, like, right? It's a, it's actually kind of true, yeah. Because Ray is like manic uh, workaholic, so that makes sense. And also just required by the financials <laughs> of the industry to be that way but uh, so well, you know actually a corollary to what ruth asked i was going to say it's very intimidating working with a husband and wife team especially one that's as accomplished as y'all because i imagine i can hear in my head the private conversations you're having <laughs> about the latest script or the way i'm trying to you know uh run the process or whatever and I'll fully admit that there was a more of a straight line version from beginning to end for the creation of this than I made y'all take. <laughs> uh, do you want to share any, uh, what was the moment, was there a moment around March or April where one or the other of you is saying, 
oh my God, what did you get us into? Like, this is going to be terrible. And we're, you know, we got to get out of this now. Or? Yeah, it was, it was, it was way earlier was, than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We knew pretty quick that things were uh, kind of. <laughs> first, first of all, It's a Wonderful Life. Are you both fans of that movie? Or, or did, did that help you move forward with the project a little bit? Or were you just like, oh, and on top of it, like, I don't even fucking like this movie that much. Well, I have to admit that before we started working on the podcast, I had never actually seen It's a Wonderful Life from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did watch it from beginning to end um, early in the process, uh, shortly after, was it before or after we went on the trip to Seneca Falls? I think it was right after. Yeah, yeah, I think we came home from Seneca Falls and, and we watched the movie from beginning to end. And I was quite surprised by it because I had only seen it in bits and pieces. And um, I remembered seeing the, um, the scene where after, after George gets his life back and he's running through the town, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. I remember seeing that at a friend's house many, many years ago in the, in the 80s. And I had sort of gotten this impression that it was kind of this hokey, Christmas movie, which of course it isn't, you know, we just did a whole 10 hour podcast about why it isn't a hokey Christmas movie. <laughs> um, and I was, I was really impressed by the emotional impact of it. I mean, like, like, like really, um, it, it really affected me. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to put into words, but there, there are some moments in the film where, where I was just blubbering. Um, when, when, when George is giving the speech about how the working man deserves a couple of decent rooms in a bath right. and, uh, and mm. Potter yawns, destroys <laughs> me. That just <laughs> apart. Um, and I was really surprised at, at, at how deep a movie it is and how many layers there are and how it really does have some really important stuff to say in it. That, that was a real surprise to me. Was there a moment, how about a, a reverse of my original question? Was there a moment during this year where you, you went, hey, you know, I don't know, maybe this is going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that? I think that when we kind of started putting, it was the one episode where um, Elizabeth had uh, put together all of the montage of the people who liked the film. Oh yeah, yeah. And then we started figuring out like where to put it and how to how to utilize it. And I'm like, all right. This is this is working because mm -hmm. it's setting stuff up. I mean, we interviewed over 200 people, right? Mm -hmm. And you know you're going to have material. You know, I mean, you can edit it seven ways to Sunday. You know, you can make it one way, you can make it another way, and you know, we did all these things. And mm -hmm. but there was also 20 other options and 20 other methods and paths that we could have gone down that we didn't do. So there was a on one hand, you can look and say, oh, well, there's probably too much material to, to work with. 
But on the other hand, it's like, well, it's good to have a lot of material because you don't know exactly what you're looking for all the time. So that was part of the issue. That was the good and the bad kind of wrapped mm -hmm. up in one, you know, having that, that much material that covers such a wide range of interests and subject matter are two sides of the same coin because one, you have all that footage to utilize and two, you have all that footage to try to utilize. So it's all about how you, from what direction you come at it from. And I think finding that direction as far as what is this podcast really going to be about and what do we want to say and starting to narrow down what that is that that really helped you know that was when we kind of really started getting stuff together and you know we had a bunch of kind of half finished things and we had a bunch of stuff that was scenes and we knew people that we liked we knew sound bites that were really good and said interesting things but what was the context who was going to mm -hmm. be in the same episode and you know so these kinds of decisions were you know they're the tough. I mean, as you know, we talked about, you know, it basically ended up being 10 one hour documentaries and they're insanely complicated. There's, there's tons of, of each, each episode has between seven and 20 interviews. Hmm. There's archival footage from the film. There's archival footage uh, from traditional sources, whether it's, news or uh, old old other old movies or other old um, educational films or whatnot or even things like commercials and PSAs that we use there's mm -hmm. voiceover the voiceover of the angel there's um, you know and then there's um, there's the music aspect you know what do we want how do we want to you know use the music I mean there's so much going on that it's yeah. not a traditional podcast, which is both the exciting part and the hard part, just like yeah. just like the footage issue. I mean, most podcasts don't do this kind of deep, deep production values. And, and that's what I told Ray, because I, re I remember, um, you know, hearing first cuts and things like that. And, and, and knowing that there was some sort of like struggle for structure there. And one thing I'm very good at is actually finding the structure at the end like it's weird like like I love it when an editor just takes all of my shit like all the hundred ideas and then like puts it in a format and I'm like okay now I can you know go in with the calm and all of that but I told Ray I'm like you know the thing is no one I I listen to a ton of podcasts and none of them sound like this and when he told me the um the idea with the narrator actually that was the one thing that Ray and I didn't agree on I didn't I didn't want the narrator but only out of vanity of choice artistic choice I was like no we, we need we need a younger audience no one's gonna want to listen to this guy that sounds like he's from 1925 yeah and my podcasting par partner on um you know my the co-founder of double asterisk John Duffy that was his thing was like dude just just, just narrate it yourself, man. Like right. take the old, the, the old timey radio guy out. I got to say about half of uh, like audience feedback that I get is about Sillings and how he like nailed the, yeah. the narrator. But I don't well, know I think you, you I think you were right. I yeah. think it totally works. I think for me at the moment, it was just that I wanted it to feel personal to you. 
and I didn't know how you were going to get there. And then when I heard that Kurt and Liz suggested that you make the last episode about why this podcast even had to be made and introduce you to it, you know, the voice doing all these interviews with these 200 people, I was like, yes, they're so right. I was 100% in. And so well, congratulations on that episode, by the is way. That a good, so good. Is that a good place to end? Because I maybe y'all would consider coming back on in the future. Maybe you can be semi-regulars because I feel like we could talk about a million things with you. But uh, but yeah, how, how did how'd you feel? How'd you, say that again. I was going to say, if we're going to do that, Ruth, please call me Elizabeth. Oh, Not I'm Liz. sorry. Elizabeth. I'm, I'm sorry. I, apo- I really People apologize. People are very particular about their names. I well, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> um, it's just getting overly familiar. <laughs> uh, I'm but, too uh, comfortable now. Too comfortable now. But uh, how, yeah, do you do, should we end on how we ended Bailey? Like, how, how, why? At what point did you decide like we needed an episode like that? And then how did you feel like it ultimately did well, within the show? Well, quickly. I mean, not. I mean, not. I mean, not quickly. But I mean, but um, just to kind of get there. Uh-huh. Uh, we had nine, you know, we had nine that were pretty solid, you know? Um, and we were like batting around, like what's the 10th and, or what was the first, you know, like really. Right. And, uh, so we had nine and what order were they going to be and this and that, and you're trying to come up with some ideas and this and, and stuff. And Elizabeth's like, you know, you guys just really need to kind of figure out what this is and, and I think what would be great is talking about it on air and what, what it is, why are you doing this? Why is Ray so fixated on this film? Why did it take up so much of his life? And why would he want to do this? She goes, that <laughs> really interesting to people and it would inform the podcast and it would help them understand and give a deeper level of understanding to for their own interpretation but for also for the podcast and i just jumped on that one i thought that was like that is a great idea so yeah i got the idea originally because ray told his story to so many people (laughs) story about what what the movie meant to him and i'm like well, this is really interesting stuff. You know, why mm-hmm. why did this podcast come about? Because here we have Ray telling the story over and over again to these interview subjects, but he's never telling that to the listener. Mm. That's right. Yeah. Which is very similar to like, again, John Duffy, his main note was like, just you got to have a, like, skip all this other stuff, push it off later. Like the first episode, I want to know that. And I felt like that was wrong. It still might have, I don't know what your opinion is at this point. Maybe starting off with episode 10 would have been stronger. But uh, but I just felt like this, you had to dive into the movie itself before we, it felt very like vanity to be like, hey, you probably want to know about me, don't you? So let's just <laughs> get that out of the way, you know? But, well, yeah. I mean, if, if it was going to be episode one, it probably would have been a weird mix. Episode one ten could probably be rejiggered, yeah, and and like half of one would mix with ten, and you know blah blah blah, and they probably work 
maybe that would be that would be the one thing if we were going to like go back in and do like a director's cut or something right that's probably what i would look to, to do you know something like that is is upon reflection is seriously rethinking one and ten and merging them together and and splitting and splitting ten and putting some of it up front and taking some of one and putting it in the back you know we didn't even get time to get into the first time I met Elizabeth, which was giving you guys bad directions into an Airbnb in Seneca Falls, New York, and having you walk into someone's living room, who was very angry. That is yeah, so yeah. you, by the way. If you if you know if you know Ray, it's that the first impression don't 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 go out first impression with Ray. Maybe the second impression. All right, Ray, Ray, Ray right, has to grow on you. Yeah, but then the next. <laughs> Brought me an omelet from that great cafe. So, uh, see what so I mean? That's second impression. Your second impression, Ray. I've said it. Second impression, Ray. I've said it. Hey, SI. Good time. SI. I've said it to you many times, so maybe it's not necessary to say it publicly, but uh, you know, your work. Uh, launched me into inspired me to do documentary your kindness brought me back to new york and got me the job at vice and and then your kindness in putting up with me and making this helped uh sort of a dream come true with this podcast so thank you both very much well it's been a pleasure and i like working with you guys there's been a lot of fun and i think that you know um it's it was a great experience it was insane at times, but at the end of the day, it was, it was a good experience. And, um, yeah, it's cool. You know, it's, it's weird. I mean, I'm not sure about podcasts, you know, I kind of, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I kept thinking, You're, man, this they're be not so all this complicated, Kurt. They're not well, all this complicated. <laughs> if they were less complicated, would they be fun? <laughs> you don't want to cut a WTF episode. I, I gotta say though, if I'm if I'm gonna do something that complicated again, I kind of want it to actually be a film and not yeah. audio only. I mean, I love yeah. editing audio. I, I I love doing interviews. That's that's like one of my strongest points. But I really did I I really did feel frustrated with the limitation of it all being audio mm-hmm. when you're getting that complicated. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Ray is a filmmaker, and so that's why the podcast sounds like a film because well, he essentially made a film, well, but it's an audio. Well, know? here's hoping. Here's hoping we get the docu series off the ground, and it has the budget to give us the the time, you know, to to cover the time that it actually takes to mm-hmm. to tell this complicated story well in three or four episodes, and maybe you'll consider. Uh, doing that if, if we were to get that funded in the new year so maybe that's a good note to leave on thank you well all. i want to i, I want to give them time and space to promote anything else that they have going on Sounds or good. if they're on social media where can you find kurt and elizabeth what are you guys up to what's next um we're trying to uh dry our house out after the recent flood so right now we have nothing to promote and nothing uh in fact um our um, the gentleman here is uh, um, taking out the fans from the basement. So um, we're uh, you know we're just not anywhere. We're just we're just in Jersey. 
So, but, but you do have a an amazing Monopoly documentary that is probably going to come out soon. I'm going to put it out there to the universe. I want to I want to watch this movie so bad. I mean, I, I feel like I've already watched like dozens of clips on it and read articles online, but I want the film, Kurt. I think you and Elizabeth can make it happen. Well, Keep going. Well, Keep well, from 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 your mouth to some rich person's ears. Okay. <laughs> so. Everybody Has a Podcast is a production of True Stories. Visit truestories.us for more. Follow me on Instagram at Ruth Vaca and at Veganish Vegetarian. Follow me on Twitter at Rayno Bischelski, R-A-Y-N-O-W-O-S-I-E-L-S-K-I, and on Instagram at BigPlayRay2023. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and give us an awesome review. Everybody has a podcast. It's available wherever you listen to your podcasts. You know, you have to like encourage people. Copyright 2023 True Stories Inc. See you next week.